On a train coming from Washington, the worthy minister had reposed himself in his berth, when in a burst of light the Lord appeared to him and gave into his keeping the secret of how gold could be taken from the sea. Mr. Jernigan, having the mystery direct from heaven, was not one to flaunt it in the faces of the uninspired scientists, but kept it locked in his own heart, as all such revelations should be. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that opening reading was from the Hartford Current from an article from January 17th, 1926 called Dredging Gold from Seawater. And I'm really excited about this episode. We're going to be talking about a great, a fantastic historical gold swindle. But before we get into the historical details, I've got a question that I want to think about. This might frame our consideration of this historical episode. Uh, you know how sometimes you see people passing around an article online about some apparently miraculous new technology that really sounds too good to be true? For example, the one that easily comes to my mind is the various proposed reactionless drives that would somehow supposedly move a spacecraft without any propellant or exhaust, apparently in violation of the law of conservation of momentum. Now, whenever one of these things makes the rounds – I see exasperated skeptics responding with, you know, the standard line. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Now, of course, I totally agree with their skepticism about these particular technologies, reactionless drives, and so forth. But I want to ask, like, step back and ask a broader question, which is, how do you actually know when something is too good to be true if if previously unexplored frontiers of science are involved. In the case of something like a reactionless drive, actual physicists and aerospace engineers and people like that are probably in a good position to swat the idea down based on years of familiarity with that particular problem space and the solutions available within it. Um, and of course, you know, their, their knowledge of the general laws of physics and trying to push against those laws throughout a career. But if you're just a regular person with Without any particular expertise, and somebody comes to you with a claim about some, you know, some new technological capability, how do you know when it's too good to be true? Especially when the mechanisms that supposedly make it possible lie underneath the shroud of submicroscopic chemistry or like invisible fields and forces in physics. I mean, uh, the, the short answer would be like why or the, the, the counter question would be, why are you coming to me with this? You know, yeah, if 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 the um, you know, if you have some sort of uh, zero gravity um, uh, technique or, you know, whatever the, the, the thing happens to be um, like, why, why are you coming to me about it? Uh, why are you trying to sell me a product uh, uh, that has to do with it instead of capitalizing it on, on it yourself? Yeah, I think that's a very good point about uh, n- noticing when these uh, these types of technologies or claims are either being sold to you. I mean, it, it, there's definitely a red flag if somebody's like trying to get your money or trying to get yeah. an investment. It's another thing if they're, if you're just being told about them and sort of asked to buy in intellectually. But even then, there is something that there is an important difference between somebody who takes a claim directly to say the popular press on the internet versus hashing it out in, in say journals where experts would be the people arguing about it. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of times it implies that there is a, a lack of expertise involved, that this is not a, like someone who is a professional in their field and they're, they're claiming to have solved a professional level problem. Um, I, th- I think zero gravity, if I remember correctly, is one of these uh, that you see where a lot of, of amateur um, individuals think they have they have solved it and they end up making like the same mistakes that other people have made in the past uh, or mistake the you know the same phenomena as uh, as zero gravity and they'll then submit it to NASA. I think Wait, NASA. It, sorry, do you mean like anti gravity? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like a, a like a, a zero g anti gravity uh, type of um, uh, technology. Okay. I'm not as familiar with those, but yeah, that seems like that would obviously fit right in with the kind of thing I'm thinking about. But like you, you can understand 
how the average person could be easily confused here when thinking about the cutting edge of, of technology and, uh, you know, especially dealing with microscopic or submicroscopic realms, because mm -hmm. you can make a list of plenty of examples of real technology that rely on principles of physics and chemistry and biology that are invisible to everyday life. But once they were discovered, they unlocked vast and what really would be almost magical seeming power and wealth when they were first harnessed, you know, you, you can think of examples like nuclear power, microprocessors, antibiotics, and to a person who didn't understand the underlying science and, and couldn't see why it is that these things worked, all of these ideas might have sounded too good to be true. And I think it's this kind of ambiguity that makes the story we're going to talk about today especially interesting, uh, because today I want to start off by talking about a fascinating historical hoax and swindle that took place in New England near the turn of the 20th century. Now, Robert, I know um, you spent part of your life in eastern Canada, didn't you? Did you ever live – was it in uh, Newfoundland or Nova Scotia? It was uh, – well, it was Newfoundland, yep. Oh, Newfoundland. Sorry, I said that wrong. <laughs> no, no. You, you said you – said it uh, the same way that, that people who, um, who are not uh, of Newfoundland or have never lived there often uh, re refer to it. Uh, <laughs> Newfoundland, uh, but not Newfoundland. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, I lived there as a child for uh, a few years. Well, it's up toward that part of the continent that we're going to travel. So if you, uh, if you look at a map and you try to find the easternmost settlement on the United States mainland, what you'll have to do is you'll follow the east coast up the edge of Maine to a point of the U.S. border with Canada. And this part of Maine is just across a body of water called the Bay of Fundy, and it's across the Bay of Fundy from Nova Scotia. Uh, so the easternmost human settlement before you hit Canada is a little coastal town called Lubeck uh, that's spelled L-U-B-E-C. And today Lubeck has a population of something like 1,200 people or so. It's between 1,200 and 1,300, uh, last count I saw. And historically, it's it's been kind of a fishing town. It got much of its livelihood from the sea, pulling in fish, clams and lobster, stuff like that. But the ocean around Lubeck and the Bay of Fundy generally – is unusual. Uh, I was reading from a 2018 article by Joyce Kreischak in, uh, in a magazine about Maine called Down East. And she's writing about the, the, the ocean in this area. She writes, quote, it's the roiling tide, the heartbeat of the ocean, which pounds harder here, that makes Lubeck feel at once isolated and enchanted. In a tangle of islands, channels, and ragged bays, the incoming tide clashes against a submerged mountain, and the outflow of the St. Croix River, uh, that's, that's spelled like C-R-O-I-X, I don't know if that's Croy or Craw locally, but she goes on, creating chaotic currents, fevered swells, and unusual phenomena like whirlpools and water spouts. Uh, and so part of what makes the sea around Lubeck so unusual is that the whole Bay of Fundy has an enormous tidal range. Now, the Bay of Fundy is, again, this large body of water between mainland New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and uh, it has some of the greatest tidal variation of anywhere in the world. There are places deeper toward the head of the bay where the difference between high tide and low tide is close to 16 meters or more than 50 feet, which is just unbelievable. And especially if you look up pictures of this, it's astonishing to see like when the sea retreats, how much land is revealed. But anyway, I was wondering what causes this huge tidal variation, and I was reading about it in a short article by a project called Exploring Our Fluid Earth, which is hosted by the University of Hawaii website. And they give a couple of reasons for this huge tidal range. Uh, the first is geography. So they say that the bay, you know, they point out that the bay is sort of V-shaped with the wide part at the mouth and the narrow part at the head. And this means as the tide flows into the bay from the mouth toward the head, it gets more and more compressed as it goes. So try to imagine a wave of water flowing into a trough that gets narrower and narrower along its length. Where would the compressed water go? Well, it has to go vertical. It has to go up. But the second reason for the tidal range is that 
because of the shape of the bay, the, the water in the bay forms a standing wave. And the short version of the way this works is that there are there are two different frequencies controlling the waves in the bay. One is the bay's natural resonant frequency, which is the period across which the water tends to slosh back and forth within the bay itself. And then the other is the broader tidal frequency, which is the period across which the ocean at large retreats and advances uh, uh, against the shore. And in the Bay of Fundy, these periods are almost exactly the same length, about 12 and a half hours. So they pile on one another to make these massive differences between high and low tide. Again, maybe around 6 meters or 20 feet near the mouth of the bay, and up to around 16 meters or more than 50 feet near the head. All of this to say, I think it's the kind of place where if you were a visitor there, you might imagine that someone could work miracles from the sea. There's there's a strong kind of deep ones energy. Yeah, we're talking just really violent seas at times, and uh, and and certainly, yeah. You look at these pictures of the uh, the tide differential, and it's it's staggering. It looks almost if you didn't know what you were looking at, you would think it, um, you know, something apocalyptic has occurred here. Yeah, uh, yeah. There are like great photos of say a, a marina with docks and boats, and then uh, that that at high tide the boats will be afloat, but then when the sea retreats, all the boats are just sort of sitting in the sediment. Yeah. But anyway, so to the town of Lubeck, uh, into this strange land of lobsters and otherworldly tides, in the year of 1897, there came a couple of business partners with a really interesting geological scam for the ages. Their claim was they were going to turn the ocean into gold. <laughs> Now, I, I want to mention a book here uh, because this was one of my major sources. Uh, it's a book edited by a scholar named Ronald Pesha called The Great Gold Swindle of Lubeck, Maine from Arcadia Publishing 2013. Most of the text of this book is actually a series of articles written by a journalist or, or, a, or a local writer from Lubeck named Carrie C. Bangs for the Lubeck Herald between 1949 and 1951. And then these articles were edited and supplemented by Ronald Pesha. Um, unfortunately, as this book makes clear, a lot of the history here is laced through with conflicting accounts from different sources. Uh, a lot of the original local reporting from the Lubeck Herald in the 1890s is lost, and so it's only known through Bang's secondary retelling in the 1940s. So this is a story where not all of the details are, are solidly established and agreed upon, but we'll do our best, I think, to, to keep to the likeliest broad strokes. So these two guys who arrived in Lubeck in uh, 1897, they were Charles Fisher, who was a native of Martha's Vineyard, who had previously been a floor walker in a Brooklyn department store. And the other was Reverend Prescott Ford Jernigan, also originally from Martha's Vineyard, but uh, he became a Baptist minister. He was educated at Brown University, and he had preached at churches from New England to Florida. And he was reportedly given to somewhat utopian thinking, especially after reading Edward Bellamy's influential utopian novel, Looking Backward. Robert, for you, I've included a picture of Jernigan here. I was trying to think for a while what he looks like, and I realized to me, he looks like the brother in Napoleon Dynamite. Do you remember Kip? Oh, yeah, I, uh, I do. Uh, I have to, to say, when I looked at him, I got kind of a, a William Sanderson vibe, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, I can see that. Or at least he looks like that would be my, my first casting choice if I could pick, you know, any actor from any any era and sort of uh -huh. pick and choose uh, what age they uh, they are in the casting. I'd probably go with William Sanderson. So you got a little bit of a J.F. Sebastian kind of thing going on. Yeah, from Blade Runner. Uh, pro probably mm -hmm. his most famous role, but he, he's been in a ton of things. He was in Deadwood. He was in True Blood. Uh, but uh, mm -hmm. um, older listeners may also remember him from Newhart, uh, the, the old uh, sitcom, uh -huh. in which he was uh, one of the trio, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. Right, yes, flanked by his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. Yes. So these two newcomers to Lubeck, uh, Jernigan and Fisher, they leased an old grist mill in North Lubeck that in its days of grinding grain had been powered by the tide. And I, I got into this. I didn't really know anything about it beforehand, but tidal mills themselves are a pretty interesting subject. They essentially work on the principle of water wheel, except – Instead of uh, using natural continuous water flow like in a river or creek to power the wheel, they accumulate water into a controlled pond or reservoir during high tide and then release that water through a gate to drive the wheel. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah. Uh, but so, so this mill in North Lubeck used to be used to grind grain and they took it over and it would become the first plant of what Jernigan and Fisher would call the Electrolytic Marine Salts Company. Uh, now, the purchase of this property in Lubeck was not the uh, beginning of the scam. Jernigan and Fisher had already scammed some investors by staging demonstrations for a number of, uh, of potential investors further south in New England. And the basic scenario for these demonstrations went like this. The Reverend Jernigan would invite the investors to gather on a dock or a seaside shed to watch as he prepared this device that he was calling the accumulator. And it was some kind of box into which mercury and sometimes other chemicals were inserted. I've read it uh, described in some places as lead-lined, in other places as zinc-lined. Uh, but it, apparently you had to put mercury into it. And in order to to assure his investors, he allowed them to supply their own chemicals. So it's like a bring your own mercury party. <laughs> so they'd show up with the quicksilver, put it into the box, and then he would apparently apply an electrical current to the box via a battery and then lower it down into the sea, where uh, at least what he claimed was that the seawater could sluice in and that something about the way this box worked would accumulate gold content from the seawater itself. It would be extracted by the mercury. And then uh, I believe the idea was that it would form an amalgam with the mercury. And then the box would be retrieved some hours later, maybe in the morning or something. And voila, there was actually gold inside. And so some of these early investors, they were astonished and they were like, okay, I'm convinced. Take my money. You know, I want a stake in your company. <laughs> Now, before we pursue the hoax any further and talk about how it worked, uh, I think it would be worth asking the question, where on earth did the underlying scientific premise here come from? Where, where did he get this idea of extracting gold from seawater? Well, it turns out that this actually wasn't without scientific precedent. And maybe we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we can talk about the idea of, uh, of gold in solution throughout the oceans. All right, we're back. We're talking about uh, the claim that one can simply turn to seawater, uh, collect it, accumulate it, and produce gold. Right. Now, we're focused in this episode on, on a hoax and swindle in, in New England history, but there is actually some scientific basis to the idea that gold could be extracted from seawater. And for a quick history of the awareness of this fact, the idea that gold and other precious metals could at least potentially be extracted from the ocean, I found a good overview in a paper by a historian named Brett J. Stubbs, published in the journal Australasian Historical Archaeology in 2008. And the paper is called, delightfully, Sunbeams from Cucumbers, an early 20th century gold from seawater extraction scheme in northern New South Wales. So Stubbs is primarily covering a different gold from the ocean plot that took place in Australia in, in uh, the early 1900s. But its introductory section has a lot of good stuff here. And the title actually comes, the, the Sunbeams from Cucumbers comes from a passage in the paper where Stubbs mentioned that there was a judge named Justice Darling. I think he's referring to Baron Charles Darling of England who at one point compared the quest to extract gold from seawater to a scheme in Gulliver's Travels, where a character spends eight years developing a process to extract sunbeams from cucumbers. <laughs> now, I, I can only assume that um, the, the part of the idea with uh, getting gold out of saltwater probably stems from the reality of panning gold from mountain streams. Um, again, getting into the idea that perhaps if, if you're not super aware of how that process is working, you might well extrapolate, well, if there's, if you can get gold out of a stream, then look how much ocean there is. There's got to be even more gold in there. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't hold up when you really look at how panning for gold works. And, um, and I feel like a lot, of, a lot of movies and TV, you know, you'll have panning for gold and it's not really, you don't really get a good sense of what's going on. Uh, but I did find that the Coen brothers uh, in the film *The Ballad of Buster Scruggs*, the the, the sequence about the go about the prospector, uh, titled *All Gold Canyon*, uh, was actually pretty informative. Uh, you know, it does a nice overview of just how it basically works. Okay. Uh, you've seen this, right, Joe? This is where Tom Waits plays the, the, the prospector. Oh, I have to admit, I actually haven't finished the movie yet. I started watching it one day and I loved it, but it's, it's one of those happens all too often now in my life where I start a movie that I like and I don't finish it, not for any reason of, of disinterest. Uh, well, I, I encourage you to press on, uh, certainly for this, 
this this particular uh, segment. Uh, it's an anthology film uh, for anyone who's not familiar right. with it. Uh, it takes place in the Old West. So in this one, we meet a gold prospector, and he's out there panning for gold. And uh, and basically, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil any of the plot, but it does a pretty good job of showing you that the panning is generally not a lucrative enterprise in and of itself, but it's a way to search for gold deposits in nearby rock that uh, that can be mined. So you find some some gold dust showing up in this mountain stream, well, then you can use that to try and figure out where in this mountainous area you might find a proper vein of gold that you can then dig for. But, you know, that's one thing. But what would the oceanic version of this be, right? I mean, the fluid dynamics of the situation are far more complicated. The sea itself is far vaster. Um, it's, you know, when you start looking at the facts involved, uh, there's far from a one-to-one here. Right. And so the idea of extracting gold from seawater is actually based uh, in, in more of like the misconception version of, of panning for gold, where the, you're not looking for a vein of gold to exploit, but you are trying to take advantage of the fact that there is actually gold in the water itself. It's dissolved in there. There's these little tiny molecules of gold throughout the oceans. Um, so going back to Brett J. Stubbs' paper, Beginning in the second half of the 19th century, there were a number of chemists and geologists that started to speculate about this. They started to say, you know what, I think that you probably can extract precious metals of all kinds from the sea. Uh, One early example is in the year 1866, in a speech to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American chemist Henry Wirtz suggested that all of the water in the world's oceans, quote, may contain more than 250 million times more gold than the total present wealth of mankind in this metal. And this was, uh, in Stubbs' words, despite its presence in concentrations that were so small as to be, uh, back to Wirtz, quote, beyond the limits of our present modes of chemical detection. So Wirtz couldn't find it yet, but just reasoned based on some other principles of geology and chemistry that there's probably a huge amount of precious metal just existing in solution throughout the ocean. And uh, Stubbs claims that the first attempts to actually measure the concentration of gold in seawater were probably carried out by the English chemist Edward Sonstadt, who was known for developing techniques in the 1860s for the production of purified magnesium. But Stubbs writes, quote, Sonstadt experimented with samples of seawater from the coast of the Isle of Man and concluded that they contained gold but in a proportion certainly less than one grain in the ton. And a grain here is a, is a unit of measure that is equivalent to about 65 milligrams. So there's not a lot of it in there. Continuing with Stubbs, he went as far as to suggest, however, that one of his methods might be practically applied to the exploitation of the gold in seawater, which might be received at high water in large tanks and emptied at low water. Sonstadt emphasized in 1892 that the amount of gold in seawater was, quote, far less than one grain per ton. But basically, he's proposing that, well, it might be possible to have some sort of like passive system in place that would gradually extract this low quantity of gold from the ocean. Right. I mean, there's a paradox involved, right? Uh, so th- there there were other researchers that soon agreed with Sonstadt, and they emphasized this paradox. In 1894, there was a professor of chemistry at the University of Sydney named Archibald Liversidge, who started running experiments and concluded that the density of gold in the ocean was somewhere between half a grain and one grain per ton of water. And remember, a grain is about 65 milligrams. So Liversidge noted the irony that while the amount of gold contained in the whole of the ocean was just enormous, I mean, far more gold than than humans have access to now, it was so spread out and so dilute that the process of capturing it and isolating it would probably cost more than the resulting gold was worth. Hmm. And several other researchers in the 1890s and early 1900s repeated these experiments, sometimes finding even lower concentrations of gold than Liversidge. But it is clear, at least from from this research, that there is gold floating in solution throughout the oceans. And if there were a cheap and efficient way to get it out, you could access vast amounts of riches. But that's a big if. 
And Stubbs notes that in the 1890s, there were many patents for processes to extract gold from seawater. Uh, however, he notes that he could only find records of two gold from seawater extraction schemes that were actually put into practice on a commercial scale, and both of them failed. One was at Hailing Island in southern England, and the other one was the main focus of uh, Stubbs' paper at Brokenhead in New South Wales, Australia. I think they were both uh, – they both began in 1904. And and these, in contrast to the plot by Jernigan and, and Fisher, these were not hoaxes. They were genuine attempts to extract the gold by chemical means, but they were never able to turn a profit. Though they were seen as very attractive endeavors to a lot of educated people, apparently no less a figure than the Nobel Prize winning Scottish chemist Sir William Ramsey, who was uh, he was instrumental in the discovery and isolation of the noble gases. I think that's what he got his Nobel Prize for. Um, he was convinced that the plant on Hailing Island, the one in southern England, was going to be a success. But within less than two years of its founding, the company operating it had folded. And the scheme in New South Wales involved uh, – it involved sort of what uh, Sonstadt was saying, the extraction of seawater up to a reservoir where it was treated on the way to the reservoir with lime and iron oxide. And then it was allowed to settle into a sludge while the water was drawn off of the top. And then the sludge was to be treated with cyanide to extract the gold. And apparently the Australian plant ceased operation very soon after it started, possibly due to storm damage, but there, there's no evidence that it ever would have been able to turn a profit. But anyway, this all brings me back to that interesting uh, comparison by Judge Darling, the idea of sunbeams from cucumbers, because a similar impracticality is actually involved. Cucumbers actually are, in a sense, made out of sunbeams, right? The sunlight feeds energy into the plant, which is used to manufacture chemical energy in the form of sugars and other tissues. And the same energy that came from the sun is actually still locked up inside the flesh of the cucumber, but in a different form. And it would take a very lossy conversion process to turn that chemical energy back into light. And uh, Stubbs recounts that other chemists in the early 20th century examined the same problem, trying to get precious metals, mainly gold, out of seawater, and they could never find a way to make the process of getting the gold out cost-effective. You could get the gold out, but the process was so expensive and so inefficient that the gold it produced was never enough to, to cause you to break even. Uh, and to quote from Stubbs, quote, the Nobel Prize winning chemist Fritz Haber, who later developed his own method for extracting gold from seawater, came to the conclusion that the quantities were so small and the expense so great that the process could never be made profitable. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Fritz Haber, by the way, uh, gave us uh, the Haber-Bosch process, uh, a method used uh, in industry to synthesize ammonia from nitrogen gas and hydrogen gas. He's also sometimes referred to as the father of chemical warfare for his uh, work on weaponized chlorine gas. Yeah, apparently a lot of his interest in extracting gold from seawater back before he realized that it couldn't turn a profit was uh, was related to making money to help Germany pay back its war debt from World War One. Hmm. So back to the Lubeck hoax. So where did Jernigan get his idea to extract gold from seawater? Uh, remember, uh, some sources allege that the idea came to him in a dream or a heavenly vision. I think he claimed that at some point, And that's the quote I read at the top of the episode from the uh, Hartford Current. Uh, but he, but others allege that he, this was not a dream. It did not come in a vision that that Jernigan basically read about the research of Edward Sonstadt. And then he thought, hey, what if I could do that? And it's also worth pointing out where this scheme occurs in history. So this is going to be in the mid to late 1890s, which is concurrent with the Klondike gold rush in Alaska and the Yukon Territory. So gold fever was in the air. Uh, but in the words of Carrie Bangs, quote, it did indeed seem less arduous to get the gold from the water than from the Alaskan fields. And as someone later pointed out, it was even more easy to pick the gold from the pockets of stockholders than from <laughs> either of these places. That's, a, that's a, a solid insight and a solid burn there. 
So beginning in October of 1897, Jernigan and Fisher operated their business in North Lubeck, uh, eventually leasing multiple locations for plants, uh, plants in quotes here, you should hear me say. And they hired uh, over 100 workers. They gathered money from lots of eager investors throughout New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Uh, apparently, they, they authored a prospectus about how they planned to extract money from the ocean that was somewhat successful in, in getting investors and at these plants, they operated these so-called accumulators that supposedly worked on the same principle Jernigan had demonstrated before, but with different specifications. To quote from Bangs, uh, again, in a January 20th, 1949 article describing them, quote, These boxes were made in part of copper and containing a battery, mercury, and unknown chemicals. It is recorded that one of the first accumulators that was used for demonstration purposes was lined with lead and was not much larger than a plate. The lead lining proved to be a bad idea as the mercury could easily eat its way through this metal. <laughs> now, we alluded to the fact earlier that uh, Jernigan, unlike some of these other people who filed for patents, Jernigan did not want to share his method. He, he kept secret whatever his method for getting the gold out of the seawater was. And with hindsight, the reason for that is obvious. Uh, Bangs reports that by February 15th, 1898, there were about a hundred of these accumulators operating under the wharf at the plant location and more were on the way. Exactly how often these accumulators were checked for gold and how the gold got into them when it was found or, or where the gold came from in general is still a matter of some dispute, but a number of sources from the time say that for a lot of these demonstrations, there was a sleight of hand involving pre-purchased gold either above water or below, and especially with like the earlier demonstrations that had taken place beforehand with some of the first investors, the idea is that while Jernigan was up on the dock doing his show, lowering the accumulator and, and entertaining the possible investors, his partner, Charles Fisher, uh, was allegedly a skilled diver in possession of a diving suit. Oh, and, I see. Yeah, and it has been widely suggested that during at least some of these early demonstrations, Fisher would sneak underwater via a guideline to the site of the accumulator in his diving suit and then salt the box or boxes with gold or silver. And then later, once they had actually established these plants and they had the accumulators working in the, uh, the mill pond reservoir, at this point, I think it's more murky whether Fisher would actually need to go underwater to salt them or whether you could just produce the gold, you know, generally at the plant later and say it came out of the accumulators. Hmm. It's not exactly clear what always was happening there, but they did have gold and it appeared this gold was just bought like it was sourced from jewelry and other stuff and, and then collected on the factory premises as if it had come out of the accumulators. And then the production of this gold from the accumulator supposedly was used to prove to more investors that they should give even more money. Now, apparently the local press was very optimistic and positive about Jernigan and Fisher and the project as a whole. Uh, I found a page hosted by the Maine Memory Network that quotes a Lubeck Herald article from 1898 saying, quote, The presence of these people is not only desirable for the amount of money that they will bring into the town, but we should welcome them for their social qualities. The officers of the company are earnest Christian gentlemen, and many of their employees are Christians. We wish them all the success in their undertaking and hope that they will take millions of dollars from the old Passamaquoddy Bay, and we believe they will. With quantities of gold in the salt water, there is little need of a trip to Alaska. <laughs> so again, the idea of like Klondike sort of being in the back of everybody's mind, and, and I wonder in what way that may actually make a hoax or, or a scam like this more appealing if there's like if it's appealing to something that you could get in another way, but it would be much harder. Again, it comes back to uh, too good to be true. It's right. the shortcut. It's the, the yeah, they're, sell, they're selling the shortcut here, which of course doesn't pan out. Yeah. Uh, so there is a question of why did Jernigan choose Lubeck for the site of the plants or Jernigan and Fisher together, I guess. Well, Jernigan claimed that it had to do with things like that extremely high tidal range that we were talking about earlier in the episode. But I've also read it speculated that 
He was basically just trying to get out of range of easy investigation by his investors and stakeholders who were mostly further south in New England. And it's worth noting that unlike several other inventors of the 1890s, again, Jernigan did not patent his process. He did not take out a patent on whatever he was doing to supposedly extract gold from the ocean. Instead, he kept it entirely secret. And again, it's now obvious why. So the scam went on for a while, but eventually in the summer of 1898, so uh, the, the year following when they arrived in Lubeck, after they had gathered by some estimates around a million dollars in total from investors, uh, but just before the scheme was fully exposed and they were caught, Jernigan and Fisher skipped town, taking their investors' money with them. And even worse than that, there, there were hundreds of workers who had been attracted to Lubeck to work for the company who were suddenly just left out of work. Apparently, Jernigan fled to Europe with his family, claiming that he himself had been duped by Fisher. That seems kind of unlikely. Uh, Fisher just disappeared entirely, and Jernigan eventually returned some of the money that he stole. He returned some of it to, to his investors. Uh, reportedly, they made about 36 cents on the dollar back from their investment, and uh, Jernigan went on to become a school teacher in the Philippines. But I, I'm still thinking about the question I opened with that you brought up just a second ago. You know, it's it's one thing when someone is selling you on a recognizable absurdity, like a pyramid scheme or magic beans or whatever. But in a way, developing scientific frontiers can make a magic bean type swindle seem more possible because they – emphasize the unarguable fact that we don't always really know what's possible. You know, it, it wasn't just that a bunch of gullible investors from New York and New England got taken in by a free money scam. Remember that I mentioned earlier from the Stubbs paper, the Nobel Prize winning chemist Sir William Ramsey was at least for a time inclined to believe that a gold from the sea experiment at Hailing Island in southern England could be leveraged into a profitable enterprise. Now, of course, further testing would prove this wasn't the case, but how exactly would people have known that this would never work? At this point in history, you know, chemistry and mineral extraction, I feel like they must have seemed like a kind of vast, untapped wilderness of infinite possibility. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I come back to the idea that it, it feels so much like a technological amplification of gold panning. And if gold panning is possible without modern technology – then, you know, might the same sort of thing be possible on a grander scale in the sea, given advances in technology? I mean, I feel like the same sort of, uh, you know, basic line of thinking, uh, you know, easily applies uh, to things today or could apply to, uh, to technology today. Yeah, if if you don't understand the underlying principles, chemistry looks like magic. I mean, just to remind you again, like the cyanide extraction process for gold, that probably would in some sense work. It just wouldn't work well enough to to make a profit. But anyway, maybe we should take another break and then when we come back we can talk more about uh the the geology, chemistry and etiology of gold. All right, we're back. So, uh I think we've touched on this a little bit on the show before, but I was thinking about the idea of where gold actually comes from. You know, it, thinking about gold existing dissolved throughout the oceans makes you wonder about questions like this, uh, because gold is a relatively rare element compared to the common places of, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, and iron and all that. But obviously, veins of it can be found in Earth's crust and in the ocean as well. So, where does gold actually come from? Well, the atomic origin of gold, like what makes the gold atoms, there's still some uncertainty here, but the evidence indicates that gold is produced in extremely violent stellar phenomena. Uh, possibly it was, it used to be thought through something known as the R process of a supernova, you know, this rapid neutron capture. More recently, uh, I've seen uh, studies uh, suggesting it's probably more likely through the collision of neutron stars. So think about that next time you're just looking at a piece of gold leaf or gold. Yeah. You're, you're drinking the, you know, the gold leaf liquor or whatever it is. Um, gold schlager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Didn't, didn't you ever know people who drank that stuff? I did. I, I knew someone who drank it exclusively. Uh, yeah. At one point. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Exclusively. That's, I like, mean, they also that's drink luxury. Water. I'm not saying they drank it only like it was their only liquid, yeah. but it, I think it was like the only, there was their, it was their go-to alcohol. Um, wow. Which, 
I mean, it's sparkly. It's go. It, it kind of under. It's a perfect example of of gold fascination. Like, like so much of our fascination with gold is based on the fact that it it looks neat, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't actually contribute to the um, you know effectiveness of a tool or a weapon, etc. It's really only when you get into uh, you know more uh, into the modern technological world where you find uh, gold is having a lot more function as opposed to just pure uh, you know shiny uh, allure. Right, right. Uh, well, you know what? Now that I, I'm sort of questioning, because I was about to say, you know, like gold is so amazing because it comes from the collision of neutron stars, probably, or whatever it is, it comes from very violent stellar phenomena that are uh, at levels of magnitude and power that you can't even comprehend. But on the other hand, I mean, tons of elements are like that. In fact, the the actual atomic origin of all elements is mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, yeah. It's just that, like, this is mind-boggling in this particular way. But gold is metal that looks like the sun, and therefore it gets uh, it gets privileged status. I guess so. But then there's another question, actually, beyond that. So, okay, the, obviously, you know, he- many heavy elements that are dispersed throughout the galaxy are created by violent stellar phenomena, supernovae, or uh, or the collision of neutron stars, things like that. But then, how does it get to Earth? So this is really interesting. Yeah, there and there again. This is another area where we don't have all the answers, and there are you know some competing hypotheses uh, to consider here. But the late Veneer hypothesis argues that gold and other specific materials were added to the Earth's crust roughly 3.8 billion years ago via a bombardment of iridium-rich meteorites known as chondrites. So this idea emerged in the early 1970s following analysis of lunar rocks and the lack of gold and iridium uh, in uh, the lunar mantle. They found, they found it on the lunar surface, however, and we have, uh, we have to remember that the surface of the moon is ancient. Lunar highland rocks returned by Apollo 16 are roughly 4 billion years old. A rock from Apollo 17 was found to be 4.5 billion years old. To put all of that in perspective, the solar system itself is thought to be roughly uh, 4.568 uh, billion years old. So some of these lunar rocks are as old as our solar system itself, basically. Mm-hmm. And you can also look at the cratering. More craters mean geologically uh, older surfaces. Fewer craters, as with Earth, indicates a geologically younger surface. Right, because the Earth is geologically active, so it's constantly repaving its own surface in a way that the moon is not. Correct, yeah. So the hypothesis here is that this golden bombardment uh, uh, was churned up and incorporated into the Earth's mantle while it only impacted the surface layer of the moon. Hmm, interesting. So in a sense, if you follow that hypothesis, you could say, okay, well, that means gold is is kind of alien. Mm -hmm. You know, it's from another world. It's (laughs) it's extraterrestrial. but uh, but then we have some some other ideas out there as well. For instance, there's the rival magma ocean hypothesis, uh, which argues that the gold was here all along. And here's how William Kremer explained it in the BBC News article, Does Gold Come from Outer Space, from 2013. Quote, all the gold in Earth's crust, or the overwhelming majority of it, was here on Earth all along. Most of it certainly alloyed with iron and uh, migrated to the Earth's core, but a significant proportion, perhaps 0.2%, dissolved into a 700-kilometer-deep magma ocean within the Earth's outer mantle. Later, the gold was brought back up to the crust by volcanic action. This is the stuff we wear around our necks and on our fingers today. Whoa, okay. So it's either – so if, if one of these hypotheses is correct, it's either from a bombardment from space or an eruption of volcanoes – Basically. But then again, it's, it's kind of like everything is due to violence in space, right? If you go uh-huh. back far enough That's uh, true. in terms of the history of our planet, etc. So, you know, it's, it's ultimately we're dealing with, um, with processes uh, and events on a scale so far beyond the, you know, the limits of a human lifetime and human experience that it's all, uh, it, it's all the, the, the machinations of the gods, right? There are no mundane atoms. All atoms are beautiful. Yeah, but they're not all equally valuable. So people did continue the search for gold in the ocean uh, after the examples we've already talked about. Uh, one of the questions I was wondering about is, okay, have have modern methods changed our picture at all of whether there is really gold in the ocean? Like were Sonstadt and the other 19th century chemists correct? Is there really gold dissolved in the ocean? And the answer is yes, but modern methods reveal that there's probably even less of it than previously estimated. 
according to some materials I was reading by the NOAA, there there is gold in seawater, but it's actually difficult to measure exactly how much, and it does seem to vary in different parts of the ocean. But uh, but they linked to one study using modern methods that was published in 1990 by uh, K. Kennison Faulkner and J. M. Edmund called "Gold in Seawater" in the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters. And uh, these authors found, quote, the measured concentrations of gold in the Atlantic and Northeast Pacific are within a factor of two to three of recently reported values in Pacific waters and nearly three orders of magnitude less than reported in the literature prior to 1988, indicating contamination problems with the earlier data. And apparently uh, there are places that have more gold in the water than other places. They point out Mediterranean deep waters apparently have higher concentrations, as do fluids surrounding hydrothermal vents, which is interesting. But the uh, NOAA summarizes uh, the findings of this paper to say that there is, quote, only about one gram of gold for every 100 million metric tons of ocean water in the Atlantic and North Pacific. So uh, that's a lot of water you'd have to churn through to get a gram of gold. Yeah, you would need uh, to take a lot of patience. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of energy. I mean, ultimately, your, your power bill would be way more than you could sell the gold for. Just one more historical instance uh, I came across of of people trying to turn gold or claiming that they would be able to to turn the ocean into gold. There was an article in the New York Times in um, on March 27, 1934, by William L. Lawrence called "Tapping Ocean's Gold Treasure Predicted as Coming in Decade," which I think is a particularly awful title. I, I don't know how you could have <laughs> phrased something that bad. That's, it's like four layers of passive voice or something. <laughs> um, uh, but it, So here's a brief sketch of the article. Uh, what was then uh, the Ethel Dow Chemical Company, which was a, a joint venture of the Ethel Company and the Dow Chemical Company, uh, they successfully deployed a plant near Wilmington, North Carolina, which was able to extract bromine from seawater. And based on the principles that were in operation at this plant, a couple of prominent chemists predicted at the 1934 annual convention of the American Chemical Society that within the next 10 years, they would be able to extract, quote, the three quadrillion dollar (laughs) treasure in pure gold known to exist in very dilute form in the waters of the seven seas. Wow. Now that is a claim. Quadrillion dollar treasure. (laughs) That, um... I, I can you imagine that as like a an, an actual official business plan uh-huh. uh, where they're like hey, and and then you know over the next uh, you know few years we're going to make three quadrillion dollars yeah via our, gold extraction <laughs> our valuation of our company is eleven zillion dollars. <laughs> Oh, that's great. But interesting historical coincidence here. Who were the chemists who made this prediction? Well, so two of them were Dow Chemical guys, Willard H. Dow and Leroy C. Stewart, but both of Dow Chemical. But the other one who made this prediction at this meeting in 1934 was none other than Thomas Midgley, who was at the time VP of the Ethel Corporation and who was a brilliant chemist, no doubt, but who is now probably more famous for developing two major technologies, leaded gasoline and chlorofluorocarbons. Oh, wow. That's that's (laughs) quite a a resume. Uh, So, yeah, actually, the name of the company Midgley was president of at the time, the the ethyl company, was the brand name for tetraethyl lead gasoline, which Midgley developed as an anti-knocking agent. So the idea was that uh, the additive, the, the added lead content would make the gasoline burn more evenly. Unfortunately, the burning of leaded gasoline just blankets the environment in lead, which which is just a bad thing to do in every imaginable way. Then on top of that, he also developed Freon, which probably would have seemed more harmless at the time. This was the first of the commercial CFCs, and this was in the search for a non-toxic refrigerant. Of course, Freon was very successful until the CFCs started to get into the upper atmosphere, and then they began to eat away at the planet's ozone layer. Uh, So I was reading uh, the words of an environmental historian named J.R. McNeil in a 2001 book, where he writes, quote, Midgley, the same research chemist who figured out that lead would enhance engine performance, had more impact on the atmosphere than any single other organism in Earth history. Wow. 
So yeah, the, the, so he's one of the guys saying three quadrillion dollars or whatever. <laughs> um, but it, anyway, uh, so uh, these guys at the, the American Chemical Society meeting in 34 were arguing, look, you know, it used to be impossible to profitably extract bromine from seawater, but now we've climbed that hill. So other substances like gold and silver and radium, they're just next in line. We just need to refine our methods. Uh, but of course, it never happened. But this makes sense, right? It's like as technology continues to advance, we kind of keep making the same mistakes, right? We keep coming back to far-fetched ideas from the past and asking ourselves, well, is it time? Is, mm-hmm. is it now? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, others keep bringing this idea up basically every decade, it seems like. I, I never saw this personally, but I was reading that apparently there was a guy on that TV show Shark Tank. Uh, I, I was reading about this in an Atlas Obscura article about uh, getting gold from seawater by Eric Grundhauser. And uh, he mentioned, so on the show Shark Tank, there's a guy who proposed a clean energy device that he just claimed as a byproduct would refine gold from the ocean. And uh, I do not think he won the the prize money or whatever. But there's another way in which people are still, in a practical sense, looking to the oceans for mineral wealth and and precious metals. Because while it might not actually be economically practical to capture gold and other precious metals from the seawater itself, the ocean does contain accessible mineral riches in other ways. Like, what about the idea of ocean floor mining? Yeah, indeed, there is a high potential for seafloor mining, at least in, in the future. Uh, this is, an, again, another area where the technology is not quite there to the point where it would be um, you know, actually profitable to go after it. Mm-hmm. But technology uh, continues to advance, as does um, you know, the, the demand for some of these substances. Uh, but yeah, particularly gold and other metals. Um, However, the practice comes with severe risks for deep sea ecosystems that we're either beginning, only beginning to understand, or in many cases are still shrouded in mystery or just unknown to us. Uh, I have to, you know, refer back to we've talked about the moon in this episode, and we've talking about the deep ocean, uh, as we've pointed out before. You know, we ultimately know more about the surface details of the moon than we know about the, the depths of Earth's own ocean. You know, I specifically remember in our conversation with uh, Diva Amon here on the show, uh, the, the the marine biologist who that was a great episode, I thought. But she she was warning specifically about the potential dangers of deep sea mining to underwater ecosystems. Yeah, because a lot of it revolves around hydrothermal vents, which we already mentioned in, in passing in the episode here. Now, if you've watched your share of nature documentaries, which I, I imagine a lot of our listeners uh, have, you've likely seen footage, incredible footage of these amazing places where chimney-shaped black smokers you know, boil the seawater and around which entire ecosystems of strange creatures thrive in the darkness, including the so-called hoff crab, which are, you know, they're actually not crabs, they're, they're deep see squat lobsters but they're they're very weird looking the whole environment is weird looking it's 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 this alien seeming world that has actually helped us better imagine how life might thrive in a truly alien environment perhaps in a dark or hidden ocean somewhere yeah like if we were ever to discover that there were life on say jupiter's moon europa uh understanding life around hydrothermal vents on earth might be a good guide to understanding what's possible on another moon or planetary body like that yeah. So, so these uh, these sites are are very impressive, and there's a, a great there's a great deal of scientific interest in what's going on there. But these vent sites also produce massive sulfide deposits rich in metals, or seafloor massive sulfide deposits, or SMS. So here, high-pressure superheated fluids escape through cracks, and they mix with the cold seawater. And when this happens, minerals form and fall to the seafloor, and these include high concentrations of copper, gold, silver, zinc, and lead. Now, on Earth's surface, we have massive sulfide deposits due to volcanic action, and these are major sources of copper, lead, zinc, silver, and gold on the surface. Uh, but So these sites would, would seem to offer the same riches— and uh, uh, again, the technology is not quite there to the point where we could actually go after these resources in a way that would be profitable, like completely putting aside any environmental concerns, like mm-hmm. it just hasn't crossed that threshold yet. But there's a lot of concern that it is about to. And sites in the Pacific are of, are of, are of special interest because they've been proven to produce high concentrations of the desired metals, plus they're shallower than other sites and therefore 
easier to potentially reach and harvest. Like these are going to be the first places that uh, that people go after. Also, these sites are generally under under the domain of Pacific nations where there may there might not be sufficient governance or management in place yet for such endeavors. I mean, that on top of just the relative newness of the entire prospect of deep sea mining. Mm -hmm. So there are organizations involved in efforts to protect these areas or in other cases, like see that any mining efforts there are done in a way that doesn't just decimate the environment. Uh, you mentioned our interview with deep sea biologist and ocean advocate uh, Diva Amon, uh, and she specifically pointed out the work of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, uh, which everyone can learn about at savethehighseas.org. They point out that these minerals have thus far proven too difficult to reach, too expensive, and the technology to do it uh, effectively, regardless of environmental concerns, isn't quite there yet. But the concern here, again, is that the technology will get there. Major players are already involved with their eyes on the, the deep seabed mining riches. And, quote, it's only very recently, as technological advancement has been matched by escalating commodity prices and demand, that the highly speculative practice has begun to be considered economically viable by some companies. So, so work needs to be done now to protect these environments, you know, to make sure that, that there, there are laws in place, um, that there's some sort of governance there, and it's not just a, a free-for-all. Um, again, I highly recommend visiting SaveTheHighSeas.org to learn more, and also consider checking out our chat with Diva Amon from last year. Yeah, absolutely. That was a good one. And I actually have one more uh, thing that, that came up in the research I'd like to, to, to bring out here briefly. We've, we've spoken about all these different ways of, like, trying to coax the, the gold out of its hiding place, right? Right. How to trick it out of the ocean or out of the, uh, the, the deep sea floor, et cetera, uh, or even out of the, the streams and the mountains. So uh, there's, a, there's an additional um, idea that I came across here called phytomining. And basically, the premise here is that some plants have the ability to absorb minerals through their roots and concentrate uh, metals such as uh, nickel, uh, cadmium, and zinc. Uh, these plants are hyperaccumulators. Uh, now, there are no gold hyperaccumulators because gold doesn't dissolve in water all that easily. But it can seemingly be forced to do so. So there's this technique that was proposed by uh, Chris Anderson, environmental geochemist at Massey University in New Zealand. And his idea was to plant fast-growing leafy plants like mustard plants uh, on soil containing gold, such as soil found near gold mines, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. When the plants reach their full height, you treat the soil to make the gold more soluble. Then the plant will absorb the gold up into its biomass, and then you harvest it. Huh. Interesting. Now, the harvesting apparently is more difficult than it sounds because you can't just burn the plant and then you know, like get, pick the gold out of the ash because gold's gonna uh, gonna escape in the smoke via the ash. Mm -hmm. So the, instead, you'd have to use a chemical process involving like strong acids. And the 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 problem is that these might be too environmentally risky in and of themselves. Uh, Anderson's idea is that perhaps you could use this alongside the just the basic absorption of soil contaminants. So you would be planting uh, these plants, manipulating uh, the soil in a way so that they're removing soil contaminants and as a byproduct, removing gold as well. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever even heard of this possibility. This is, this is brand new to me. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like there's been a ton of work on it, but there has there are some other um, uh, papers about it out there. And some of them are, uh, I was looking at another one as well that seemed to frame it as a more uh, like environmentally stable solution. But um, but but I don't know. Uh, the, the other source I was looking at was, was saying that, you know, you have to consider these acids that are used uh, to treat the soil. So mm. uh, so I don't know. Uh, what I'm saying, I guess, is it, it's it's perfect for someone to scam uh, people with right now. <laughs> right. Yes. So if you want to become the next Reverend Prescott Ford Jernigan, you just need to come up with a good story about a vision of plants that you had while asleep in a train car. And then you find a suitable small town and you say, I'm going to make mustard greens into gold <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can see it now i think it would make for a great um i don't know it could, it could be a great plot element in the story for sure it could be a good um, hbo show yeah there's a there's actually there's a live science article about this titled there's gold and then there are plants uh, <laughs> by uh, Lindsay conkle and this was from 2013 well i'm immediately thinking of pipper <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, from uh, Final Sacrifice. Yes, The Final Sacrifice, uh, famously um, uh, riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm-hmm. Pipper digs. So anyway, I don't know about gold from plants, or uh, certainly I don't know about um, about uh, uh, finding the, the, the lost city of Zeos uh, here uh, in Canada. But, uh, but certainly I, I think we have explored the possibility of finding uh, hidden gold in the ocean. Um, <laughs> the, the, technically, yes, but with some... Uh, with some, well, some definite asterisks. Uh, technically, yes. Place. Practically, no. Right. If somebody comes to you with a with a get rich quick scheme about it, you should uh, you should you should have a chemist friend look into it first. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and close the episode out right there. Uh, but we'd love to hear from everyone about this topic. Uh, uh, certainly, if you have any connection to some of the the parts of the world that we discussed here. And if you want to uh, support the show, uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.